Hello, and welcome to Plutarch's Greeks and Romans, a podcast taking you on a tour through ancient Greek and Roman history, seen through the lives of the most famous and influential people who lived it, with the ancient historian and biographer Plutarch as our guide and companion. Welcome back, everyone, for episode 11, The Life of Pericles. We'll pick up this episode more or less right where we left off in episode 10. At the end of the last episode about the life of Chimon, we mentioned how, after the Spartans snubbed Athens' help in dealing with their Helot slave rebellion, that Chimon lost popularity in Athens due to his well-known and long-standing pro-Spartan views. And Chimon came out on the losing end of an ostracism vote in 461 BC, sending him into exile for 10 years. Yeah, even after all the victories he had won all around the Aegean Sea also. That's right. As we've seen in Democratic Athens, it was all about, what have you done for me lately? Well, with Chimon out of the picture for a while, more democratic figures would step up to fill the leadership vacuum, and Pericles would end up becoming the most prominent of these, eventually establishing a legacy as arguably the greatest statesman in the history of Athens. With Pericles as the lead voice in the Ecclesia, Athens would experience a golden age which continues to impress us a full two and a half millennia later. Pericles was an Athenian of noble birth, and was descended from Cleisthenes, the principal founding father of Athenian democracy, through his mother Agoristi. Plutarch writes that, One night Agoristi dreamt that she had given birth to a lion, and a few days afterwards she was delivered of Pericles, who though otherwise faultless in the shape of his body, had a head of inordinate length and of disproportionate size. This circumstance explains the fact that almost all of his busts show a helmet upon the head. This is, of course, true. If you see a bust of Pericles in a museum, he's always sporting a helmet. That's very interesting, actually. Um, in the new Civilization game, he's wearing a helmet also. Never without it. <laughs> the comic poets and playwrights of Athens called Pericles Sinocephalus, which means squill head. I guess because his head looks like a sea onion bulb. Telecleides wrote, Now lost mid the maze of affairs... He sits in the polis with headache. Now from the spacious vaults of his head, he emits a loud rumble. Wow, the poets really like to roast him. Yeah, one of the great things about ancient Athens was how nobody, regardless of their standing, was safe from criticism or ridicule. And these prominent citizens would generally have front row seats at the theater, so everyone could watch them watching themselves being made fun of in the comedic plays. One of Pericles' greatest political opponents, Cleon, would be the target of savage mockery from Aristophanes, Athens' leading comic playwright. We'll get to Cleon later, though. Plutarch tells us that young Pericles was tutored by Daemon, Zeno, and Anaxagoras. This is relevant information because, in Athens, the path to political power was through making great speeches in the courts and in the ecclesia, so having the best tutor was of crucial importance. It was from this tutor, Anaxagoras, that we are told Pericles learned to adopt the air of dignity that he became famous for. It was apparently because of this calm nobility that he learned to speak and carry himself with, that he earned the title Olympias, which is obviously a much better nickname than Squillhead. Most definitely. It seems that as a young man, Pericles did not immediately rush into politics, apparently owing to his cautious nature. This likely had something to do with concern over the potential of ostracism. And as we saw in earlier episodes, being exiled in this way was a very real risk for prominent political figures in Athens. Evidently, even at a young age, Pericles' wealth reputation, noble parentage, and powerful friends combined might make him appear a threat to some, and thus a target for ostracism if he were to get involved in politics. This being the case, Pericles at first left politics alone, preferring instead to display his courage and worth on the battlefield. But Plutarch tells us that, When Aristides was dead, and Themistocles in exile, 
When the exigencies of war kept Cimon continuously away, then Pericles came forward and attached himself to the popular party. You will, of course, remember Themistocles, Aristides, and Cimon from episodes 7, 8, and 10. It seems that choosing to align himself with the more democratic faction in the Ecclesia was a strategic move by Pericles. He was an aristocrat himself, but since Cimon already dominated the aristocratic faction at the time, Pericles seems to have decided to become a champion of the people. After entering into politics, Pericles appears to have developed an air of dignity and gravity about his person, an Olympian personality to go along with his Olympian way of speaking. Plutarch says that Pericles was never to be seen walking the streets other than to the marketplace or council hall, and stopped accepting invitations to dinner. He seemed to believe that the air of gravity and superiority he created around himself could potentially be undone if people became too intimately familiar with him, so he maintained a certain distance to better command the respect of his fellow Athenians. Having entered into political life and having aligned himself with the popular faction, Pericles became one of the leaders of this group, along with a man named Ephialtes. Ephialtes went on a campaign against the Areopagus, which was the last vestige of aristocratic privilege in the city. The Areopagus was a council whose membership was restricted to ex-archons. Its power had already been curtailed, but Ephialtes succeeded in having what authority it still possessed removed from it. Following this political victory, though, Ephialtes was murdered. It seems logical to blame the murder on Ephialtes' enemies in the city's aristocratic faction, but some actually accuse Pericles of having a hand in the assassination. They point out a lack of outrage by Pericles following the murder, and how Ephialtes' death left Pericles as the de facto leader of Athens' democratic faction. Plutarch, as usual displaying the appropriate amount of skepticism, seriously doubts these claims of Pericles being involved in the murder. Things certainly did seem to work out in Pericles' favor, though, as Ephialtes' death removed any potential rival on the democratic side. And when Cimon was banished following the fiasco of the aid mission to Sparta, there really wasn't anyone on the conservative-slash-aristocratic side to effectively oppose Pericles either. I'm just trying to think back. Didn't a new leading voice begin to emerge on the conservative side when uh, Cimon went into exile? Yeah, I mean, a man named Thucydides, not to be confused with the historian Thucydides, would become a lead voice eventually, for a time. But when it came to making convincing speeches in the Ecclesia, nobody could match Pericles. It was said that persuasion sat on his lips. In Athens, as I mentioned earlier, public speaking was a highly competitive and highly prized art. Young men trained hard to be the best, and skilled tutors were very sought after, and well compensated for their services. It seems that Pericles was so skilled at making speeches that he really needed someone with the reputation of a Cimon to effectively oppose him in the Ecclesia. Anyway, going back to the murder of Ephialtes for a moment, even though Plutarch is likely right and Pericles had nothing to do with the murder, it is worth noting the incident because it highlights how rare political violence had been so far in democratic Athens. Democracy had been in place for nearly 50 years at this point, and Ephialtes seems to have been the only political assassination to have occurred. In any event, with Ephialtes dead and Cimon exiled for 10 years, Pericles would become the leading voice in an Athens whose power was very much on the rise. We mentioned in the last episode how the nature of the Delian League had been changing over time, from an alliance of equals to one dominated by Athens. Over time, most cities had stopped contributing ships and men, and made cash payments instead, which tipped the balance of power heavily towards Athens. And then when Thassos had attempted to leave the alliance, Athens brought them back in by force and punished them. Over time, the cash payments required by the Delian League members was increased as well. And as for Persia, that threat seems to have been neutralized. 
Some report that Callias, the wealthy man who had married Cimon's sister Elpinike and lifted the two out of poverty, negotiated a peace treaty with Persia, in which Persia agreed to leave the Ionian Greek cities of Asia Minor independent and stay out of the Aegean Sea. Others believe that this peace treaty never happened. If it did happen, the exact date is unclear. But, peace treaty or no peace treaty, Persia was making no moves in the Aegean at this time. So Athens found itself in a powerful position, and began flexing its muscle a bit around the Greek world. For one, angered over the way the Spartans had insulted them when they had tried to help Sparta end the siege of the rebellious Helots who had fortified Mount Athome, they broke off their alliance with Sparta, which remained from the Persian War, and made an alliance with Argos. Argos was Sparta's old rival on the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Athens also caught wind that Egypt was rebelling against Persia again, and sent a fleet to the Nile to hopefully help break Egypt away from the Persian Empire. This expedition ultimately ended in failure and a large loss of life, but other initiatives by Athens at this time were more successful. The city of Megara, which lay between Athens and Corinth on the narrow stretch of land connecting the Peloponnese with the rest of Greece, joined Athens' alliance after a dispute over borders with neighboring Corinth. Athens also took the fight to their old rival Aegina, defeating their fleet before landing on the island and commencing a siege. Sparta sent 300 hoplites to Aegina to help them hold out. Meanwhile, Corinth, seeing Athens busy with the siege of Aegina and with aiding the Egyptian revolt, saw an opportunity to attack Megara. However, Athens, rather than lifting the siege of Aegina, instead put together an army of young men and old veterans and marched them out to face the Corinthians. The first battle was inconclusive. The Corinthians and Athenians both felt they got the better of the encounter, but after the Corinthians withdrew to their city, the Athenians erected a trophy on the battlefield. This shamed the Corinthians into marching back out to the battlefield less than two weeks later to erect their own trophy, which caused the Athenians to sally out from the city of Megara, and this time dealt a more stinging and decisive defeat to the Corinthians. So it sounds like the Corinthians let pride get the better of them on that occasion. Yes, perhaps so. Anyway, to go back to those rebellious Helot slaves on Mount Athome one more time, after years of unsuccessfully besieging the mountain, the Spartans agreed to a truce with the rebel slaves in 457 BC, allowing them to leave the Peloponnese upon condition that they never return. Athens helped these slaves resettle in Naupactus, on the northern coast of the Crissaean Gulf. This further angered Corinth, as it seemed to threaten their control of trade in and out of these waters. This same year, another flashpoint between Sparta and Athens would take place. In central Greece, the Phocians invaded the region of Doris, according to tradition, the original homeland of the Spartans, and the Spartans sent an army of 1,500 hoplites to the aid of the Dorians. After restoring peace, however, the Spartans found their route home blocked with Athenian forces guarding a key pass, and so they retired to Boeotia and considered how to proceed. Seeing the Spartans seemingly at a loss about what to do, the Athenians marched against them with a large force of their own, accompanied by hoplites from Argos and other allies. They would meet up and clash with the Spartans and their allies at a place called Tanagra in Boeotia. Before the Battle of Tanagra commenced, Cimon, who was only part way through his ten-year period of exile, as per the rules of ostracism, arrived at the battlefield and attempted to line up for battle alongside the men of his tribe. But a large group of Pericles' friends and supporters put a stop to this and made Cimon leave the battlefield. Geez, why not just let him fight? I guess they just didn't want to allow Cimon a chance to redeem himself, or get come back into power early, or... Yeah, that does seem to be the reasoning. Cimon saw this battle as a chance to prove that he was no Spartan sympathizer after all, by taking the field against the Spartans. And Pericles and his allies didn't want to give him that opportunity to redeem himself 
and perhaps achieve more glory through battlefield heroics. After forcing Chimon to retire from the field, it seems that maybe Pericles felt it was now important for him to assert his own valor in the ensuing battle, and Plutarch says that Pericles seems to have exerted himself more than in any other battle, and to have been conspicuous above all for his exposure of himself to danger. It seems that Chimon's friends, who along with Chimon had been accused of being soft on Sparta, had a similar idea in their heads, and fought fiercely to prove themselves in this battle, with Plutarch reporting that they all, to a man, fell together side by side. Oh, wow, that must have been pretty tough on uh, Chimon there. You know, he wasn't able to fight, and he lost all his friends. It's true. But despite all these Athenians fighting like maniacs to prove their patriotism, the Athenians end up losing the battle. They were, after all, up against the Spartans, who were still invincible in land battle. And it probably didn't help that their Thessalian allies switched sides during the battle. After winning the battle, the Spartans marched back to the safety of the Peloponnese, but not before stopping to destroy all the fruit trees around Megara. It seems that following this defeat, many began to regret the ostracism of Chimon and wished to have him restored to the city. Plutarch writes, Pericles, being sensible of their feelings, did not hesitate or delay to gratify it, and himself made the motion for recalling him home. He, upon his return, concluded a peace betwixt the two cities, for the Lacedaemonians entertained his kindly feelings towards him as they did the reverse towards Pericles and the other popular leaders. Yet some there are who say that Pericles did not propose the order for Chimon's return till some private articles of agreement had been made between them, and this by means of Alpinike, Chimon's sister, that Chimon, namely, should go out to sea with a fleet of 200 ships and be commander-in-chief abroad, with a design to reduce the king of Persia's territories, and that Pericles should have the power at home. Whether or not Alpinike really did broker such a deal with Pericles on behalf of her brother Chimon, Chimon did return from exile, helped to conclude a truce with Sparta, and then did get to set sail one more time at the command of a fleet of triremes, before passing away on the Isle of Cyprus, surrounded by his beloved ships and sailors. Around this time, Athens also began to behave in a more nakedly imperial manner with its Delian League allies. For one, Athens moved the League's treasury from the island of Delos to Athens in 454 BC. Well, that's saying a lot right there. Yeah, and the way that the League's funds began to be spent was perhaps even more contentious. At Pericles' urging, Athens undertook a massive public building program in the city, using funds from the League treasury. Construction began on the Parthenon, atop the Acropolis, to replace the previous temple, which had been destroyed by the Persians. And afterwards, the massive Odeon was erected, next to the Theatre of Dionysus, and served as a concert or music hall. Critics of Pericles complained that it was an affront to Athens' allies to deck out the city using funds, which were ostensibly meant to be for defense against the Persians. However, Plutarch writes that Pericles unapologetically responded by saying, quote, that they were in no way obliged to give any account of those monies to their allies, so long as they maintained their defense and kept off the barbarians from attacking them, while in the meantime they did not so much as supply one horse or man or ship, but only found money for the service. Which money, said he, is not theirs that give it, but theirs that receive it? If so be, they perform the conditions upon which they receive it. And that it was good reason that, now the city was sufficiently provided and stored with all things necessary for the war, they should convert the overplus of its wealth to such undertakings as would hereafter, when completed, give them eternal honor, and, for the present, while in process, freely supply all the inhabitants with plenty. Well, Pericles, you know, he does make some pretty valid and solid points there. Yeah, he does. And well, to be fair, two and a half millennia later, I'm glad, however it was paid for, that the Parthenon was built, 
and that much of it remains for us to see today. The point that Pericles makes about supplying the inhabitants of Athens with plenty is an important one as well. Between the ambitious public building projects, as well as maintaining, supplying, and manning the ships of the fleet, the number of Athenians receiving state pay of some kind was high. Plutarch says that Pericles also liked to put on public shows and banquets, in addition to the regular schedule of festivals. And obviously, as the man behind these policies, Pericles gained a great deal of support from the regular Athenians, who enjoyed the shows and free meals, and benefited from all the job creation. Plutarch, being maybe the first person to write about economic spin-off, discusses the various trades and industries which benefited from Pericles' program. He tells us, The materials were stone, brass, ivory, gold, ebony, cypress wood, and the arts of trades that wrought and fashioned them were smiths and carpenters, molders, founders and braziers, stonecutters, dyers, goldsmiths, ivory workers, painters, embroiderers, turners, those again that conveyed them to the town for use, merchants and mariners and shipmasters by sea and by land, cartwrights, cattle breeders, wagoners, rope makers, flax workers, shoemakers and leather dressers, road makers, miners, in every trade in the same nature, and as a captain in an army has his particular companies of soldiers under him, had his own hired company of journeymen and laborers belonging to it banded together as an array, to be as it were the instrument and body for the performance of the service. Thus to say all in a word, the occasions and services of these public works distributed plenty through every age and condition. So Pericles was ensuring that the money coming in was put to use keeping the economy humming, and thus reached the highest number of Athenians possible. As Plutarch mentions, this benefited skilled trades and craftsmen, as well as suppliers of raw materials, but there also seems to have been a corresponding cultural explosion going on. To be sure, Athens was already something of a cultural hub, but during the life of Pericles, the inhabitants of Athens are like a who's who of brilliant Greeks. Sophocles, Euripides, Thucydides, Phidias, Socrates, Herodotus moved there from Halicarnassus. Whether you're interested in art, architecture, theater, literature, history, or philosophy, there was somebody in Athens during this period making massive contributions. Wow, it must have been a really exhilarating time to live in the city. Yes, and you do get the sense that the Athenians did feel their city was at the center of everything at this time. An impressive side note, the construction of the Parthenon took less than 10 years to complete, though the sculptures would take several more years to finish. Plutarch is blown away by this fact, and so am I. By comparison, the current restoration project at the Parthenon has been happening for 30 years, and I believe it's still not 100% complete. If you're in the mood for more on the Parthenon after this episode, there's a good PBS Nova episode, Secrets of the Parthenon, which is worth a watch. Anyway, having the full support of the people, and having reached heights of political power no other Athenian had achieved since the adoption of democracy, Plutarch says that Pericles began to behave differently. To some extent, he was no longer subject to the whims of the people. Rather than shifting his policies to correspond with public sentiment, he could now shift public sentiment to correspond with his policies. Pericles could act in the way he felt most benefited the city, and he had the trust and support to bring the people around to his way of thinking when needed. He earned the trust, not only through his persuasive speeches and wise policies, but also through his unimpeachable character. Despite all his successes, he never seems to have been guilty of any serious corruption, at least not to his own personal benefit. As Plutarch puts it, the source of his predominance was not barely his power of language, but, as Thucydides assures us, the reputation of his life and the confidence felt in his character, his manifest freedom from every kind of corruption and superiority to all considerations of money. Notwithstanding he had made the city of Athens, which was great of itself, 
as great and rich as can be imagined, and though he were himself in power and interest more than equal to many kings and absolute rulers, who some of them also bequeathed by will their power to their children, he, for his part, did not make the patrimony his father left him greater than it was by one drachma. So at this time, Athens was wealthy, powerful, culturally rich, and had a confident leader with the city's best interests at heart. However, they also had a powerful rival in the Spartans. Relations between Athens and Sparta, and Sparta's allies in the Peloponnesian League, continued to be poor. Corinth, probably Sparta's most important ally, saw Athens' growth as an outright threat to their own prosperity, and it seems many in Sparta were also concerned with Athenian expansion. Athens, for her part, after losing a battle to the Poetians in central Greece, and having to deal with a revolt on the island of Evia, decided to conclude a 30 years peace with Sparta in 446 BC. A sort of equilibrium had been reached, but how long could it last? Sparta was no longer the unquestioned dominant power in Greece. There was now an equal power in Athens, and of the two cities, Athens was the one on the rise. The Spartans were still the dominant land power, unbeatable in an infantry battle, and the leader of the Peloponnesian League. The Athenians, however, were now the dominant naval power, in full control of the Aegean Sea, and controlling a League of Allies, which had been by now converted into essentially an empire, in all but name. Almost the entire Greek world was aligned with either Athens or with Sparta. Can peace be maintained? And if it can't, can the Greek world survive a war which promises to be waged on a scale and scope beyond anything the Greeks had experienced before? And who would come out on top in such a clash? Well, Ryan, you've said that beautifully. And as for me, I'm guessing, no, peace cannot last. An epic showdown is inevitable here, and it will be one for the ages. Well... To find out what happens next, join us again next episode for part two of The Life of Pericles. Thanks for listening to Plutarch's Greeks and Romans podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to head over to our blog at plutarchsgreeksromans.wordpress.com or check out Plutarch's Greeks and Romans on Facebook. And don't forget to leave us a review on whichever podcast service you are using. See you next time.